0: Welcome all to our second service today on this beautiful Sunday, sunny Sunday afternoon. We welcome all together, also the many guests and visitors and those who are watching on live feed. We pray that our worship may be to the glory of God and upbuilding to each other. We welcome Reverend Tim to our pulpit.
1: good afternoon. What a great joy to be gathered together once again uh, to worship our God together, uh, to hear the gospel, and even to see the gospel signified and sealed uh, to Andrew and Cheryl and their new little girl, Maddie Christina. What an awesome uh, opportunity that we have. As we begin our worship service, I ask if you are able to, please stand for our call to worship. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. And as we gather to worship this awesome, glorious God, we come confessing our humble dependence. Congregation, where does our help come from? Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. And the Lord greets us with his blessing from Scripture. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's sing together to our God of grace, uh, whose our strength and whose steadfast love is sure, uh, with the words of Psalm 73, stanza 8. Into the administration of baptism, and so we'll use the the form that we have for that purpose that explains uh, what baptism is all about uh, based on scripture. Once again, we'll turn together to the form for the baptism of infants, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The doctrine of holy baptism is summarized as follows First, we and our children are conceived and born in sin and are therefore by nature children of wrath so that we cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we are born again. This is what the immersion in or sprinkling with water teaches us. It signifies the impurity of our souls so that we may detest ourselves, humble ourselves before God and seek our cleansing and salvation outside of ourselves. Second, baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. We are therefore baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When we're baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that he establishes an eternal covenant of grace with us. He adopts us for his children and heirs and promises to provide us with all good and avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. When we're baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son promises to us that he washes us in his blood from all our sins and unites us with him in his death and resurrection. Thus we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. When we're baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this sacrament that he will dwell in us and make us living members of Christ, imparting to us what we have in Christ namely the cleansing from our sins and the daily renewal of our lives till we shall finally be presented without blemish among the assembly of God's elect in life eternal. Third, since every covenant contains two parts, a promise and an obligation, we are through baptism called and obliged by the Lord to a new obedience. We are to cleave to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to trust Him and to love Him with our whole heart, soul, and mind. And with all our strength, we must not love this world, but put off our old nature and lead a God-fearing life. And if sometimes, through weakness, we fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy, nor continue in sin. For baptism is a seal and trustworthy testimony that we have an eternal covenant with God. Although our children do not understand all this, we may not, therefore, exclude them from baptism just as they share without their knowledge in the condemnation of Adam, so are they without their knowledge received into grace in Christ. For the Lord spoke to Abraham, the father of all believers, and thus also speaks to us and our children, saying, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Peter also testifies to this when he says, for the promise is for you, And for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore, in the old dispensation, God commanded that infants be circumcised. This circumcision was a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness of faith. Christ also took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In the new dispensation, baptism has replaced circumcision. Therefore, infants must be baptized as heirs of the kingdom of God and of his covenant, And as they grow up, their parents have the duty to instruct them in these things. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory and for our comfort and to the upbuilding of the congregation, let's call upon his holy name. Let's pray together. Almighty, eternal God, in your perfect righteous judgment, You punished the unbelieving and unrepentant world with the flood. But in your great mercy, you saved and protected the believer Noah and his family. You drowned the obstinate Pharaoh and all his host in the Red Sea, but led your people Israel through the midst of the sea on dry ground, by which baptism was signified. We therefore pray, Lord, that you in your infinite mercy will graciously look upon Maddie, your child, and incorporate her by your Holy Spirit, into your son, Jesus Christ, so that she may be buried with him in baptism into death and raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that Maddie, following him day by day, may joyfully bear her cross and cleave to him in true faith, firm hope and ardent love. Grant that she, comforted in you, may leave this life which is no more than a constant death and at the last day may appear without terror before the judgment seat of Christ, your son. All this we ask through him, our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who with you and the Holy Spirit, one only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. And I'd like to invite up uh, Andrew and Cheryl and and, uh, Maddie as well. Andrew and Cheryl. Beloved in Christ the Lord, you have heard that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord our God to seal to us and our children his covenant. We must therefore use this sacrament for that purpose, not out of custom or superstition. That it may be clear then that you desire baptism for the right purpose, you're to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you confess that our children, though conceived and born in sin and therefore subject to all sorts of misery, even to condemnation, are sanctified in Christ and thus as members of his church ought to be baptized. Second, do you confess that the doctrine of the Old and New Testament summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Third, do you promise as father and mother to instruct Maddie, your child, in this doctrine as soon as she is able to understand and to have her instructed therein to the utmost of your power. Andrew, what is your answer? Thank you. Cheryl, what is your answer? Maddie Christina Lutens. I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Please rise, if you're able to, and join with us in singing hymn 56. Let's pray together. Almighty, merciful God and Father, we thank you and praise you that you have forgiven us and our children all our sins through the blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. You received us through your Holy Spirit as members of your only begotten Son and so adopted us to be your children. You sealed and confirmed this to us by holy baptism. We pray through your beloved Son, You will always govern Maddie by your Holy Spirit, that she may be nurtured by the Christian faith and in godliness by Andrew and by Cheryl, and that she may grow and increase in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that she may acknowledge your fatherly goodness and mercy, which you have shown to her and to us all. May she live in all righteousness under our only teacher, King and High Priest, Jesus Christ. And may she valiantly fight against and overcome sin, the devil, and his whole dominion. May she forever praise and magnify you and your son, Jesus Christ, together with the Holy Spirit, the one, only, true God. We ask, Lord, that you will bless Maddie in this way, and also all of us in this way as well. And bless us now as we turn to open your word together. May our worship be pleasing and pleasant in your sight, and also make it powerful and effective in our hearts and minds. We ask these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen. For this afternoon service, we'll be uh, addressing uh, one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, so in relation to that, our scripture reading for this service comes from Matthew 18, the uh, verses 21 to 35. A very famous passage uh, that speaks to forgiveness. I'll mention again later, but before we begin our reading, uh, notice the context. Uh, Right before this parable about forgiveness and dealing with sin by forgiving it, uh, we actually have one of the most uh, well-known, one of the most famous uh, uh, sections in the Bible about uh, church discipline, uh, beginning at, at verse 15, talking about if someone sins against you. It doesn't say just forgive it and leave it alone, but rather it says go and address it. And then address it with more people and bring it to the church if necessary and address it that way. We'll hear more about that a little bit later. The context is important. But we'll go straight to our text for now. Uh, Matthew 18, beginning at verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times Now having read a little bit about uh, God's forgiveness and our forgiveness flowing out of that, uh, let's sing uh, once again about God's forgiveness with the words of Psalm 32, stanza one. confession which summarizes the teaching of scripture about what it means to pray father forgive us our debtors as we also forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors lord's day 51 this is our confession what is the fifth petition and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors that is for the sake of christ's blood do not impute to us wretched sinners Any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us, as we also find this evidence of your grace in us, that we are fully determined wholeheartedly to forgive our neighbor. So far, the reading of our confession, brothers and sisters. In 2015, there was a shooting in a church in South Carolina. Nine family members and friends were killed by the gunman. But the families of those who were killed showed up at the uh, culprit's bond hearing. And they emotionally said to him that though they dearly missed their mothers and their fathers and sisters and brothers, those who were killed, they said, nevertheless on the basis of their faith in Jesus Christ, they forgave him. Many people were moved by this amazing display of forgiveness. But some people were not moved. Some people were angry. An article came out in the Washington Post shortly afterwards condemning the forgiveness of the families. Forgiveness, they argued, perpetuates the cycle of attacks and abuse. Perpetuates the cycle of attacks and abuse. And I don't know about you, but I was surprised to learn that in Christ's time and his day, and even today, there are many, many people who do not respect or value forgiveness. In fact, there are many people who see forgiveness and they hate it. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, came down in the flesh And he ushered in a new kingdom, as we read together. A kingdom different than the kingdom of this world. And it's clear from passages like the one that we just read, and from the prayer that Christ himself taught us, that a foundational principle to Jesus Christ's kingdom is the principle of forgiveness. And that's what we'll be talking about this afternoon, forgiveness. We'll see it in three parts. First, we'll see how much to forgive. Secondly, we'll see how to forgive. And then finally, Thirdly, we'll see how God forgives. So first of all, how much to forgive. In Jesus' day, apparently there was a Jewish tradition that suggested that if somebody sinned against you, they wronged you, you should forgive them up to three times. Sounds pretty generous, doesn't it, actually? Three times? Yet Peter, he recognized that Jesus had a much higher value of forgiveness than what he had been taught. And so Peter, at the beginning of our text, what does he say? He goes up to Jesus, and he asks him, how many times should we forgive the Lord? Should we forgive up to seven times? That is a lot of forgiveness for someone who uh, sins against you. But yet Jesus says no. He says his kingdom is far more radical than that. Not seven times, I tell you, but 77 times. And I wonder if you realize why Jesus says not seven, but 77, because I never fully grasped it till this week. But Jesus is actually making an amazing reference here to another story in Scripture, the only one that uses seven and 77 times. If you know the Bible well, well then think back, way back to the beginning of the Bible, right after the fall into sin. There we read about the first murder. We read about Cain and Abel. Cain, you might remember, was jealous. He rose up in anger, and he killed his brother Abel. And so God cursed him and sent him away. But in his grace, he promised that if anyone hurt Cain, he would take care of justice. He would avenge Cain seven times, God said. And so Cain left, and he built a city. And in that city, sinful humanity reigned. Sin and violence and destruction and rebellion reigned. One of Cain's descendants was named Lamech. And we read about him in Genesis chapter 4. And we read very little about him, but what we read is a song that he wrote, a poem. I wonder if you can think of Lamech's poem. He brags in that poem, Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's, is 77-fold. What we see in in that chapter is an explanation of fallen humanity, an explanation of our own sinful hearts. We see there, by nature, we don't really want to leave justice in someone else's hands, not even God's hands. We don't want Him to take care of avenging us. We don't even want justice at all. Rather, we want vengeance. If you hurt me, I'll hurt you back even worse. If you wound me, I'll kill you. If you hurt me, I will make you pay. God, if God says Cain's vengeance would be sevenfold, but well then Lamech says, I'll take care of myself, I'll get 77-fold. Pain for pain. And we too, we live by that principle often, even if we don't kill people. Yeah, but still, if people hurt us, we try and hurt them back naturally. That's our instinct. If someone hurts them, then maybe the way we hurt them back is by shutting them. We want to let them know we're upset. If uh, someone hurts us, then maybe we'll gossip about them. We'll try and damage their reputation. Maybe we'll just root against them. We want to hear that something bad happens to them. If things are going well to them, then we're sad to hear it. When people hurt us often, somehow, some way, we want to make them pay. Thankfully, God promised a savior to this fallen world. And in Jesus Christ, he arrived, and he ushered in a new kingdom, a better kingdom, and in his kingdom, we live by a dramatically different principle. By nature, fallen humans like Lamech, we want absolutely unbridled vengeance. But Jesus, in his answer here to Peter, he shows that his kingdom will be built on absolute unbridled forgiveness. Unbridled grace. And There's a shocking thing that Jesus teaches then in our text and also in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches there's a profound sense in which our forgiveness from God is organically and inseparably linked to our forgiving other peoples. Other people. In this story we just read, one of the servants is not transformed by God's grace. And so his debt, he's told eventually, is not truly forgiven. Likewise, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our debts. We're usually okay with that part. But we say, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. There's a link to how much we forgive and how much we realize we've been forgiven. And Tim Keller explains this very well in one of his books about this topic. And I owe a lot of insights for this sermon to that book. The one example he gives is to think of it like two apple trees. One of these apple trees, they're right beside each other in season. It's full of apples, as it should be. The other one beside it has none. Does the lack of apples make that second tree bad? Not really. But yet that lack of apples is very telling. That tree must be unwell. It must be very sick, maybe near death. Our forgiveness and all of our fruit is imperfect. But if we have little to no sign of forgiveness at all, what we read here, and we see a hint of it in the Lord's Prayer as well, is there's a powerful indicator that perhaps we don't really know Christ. As we heard earlier today. We don't know Christ and his forgiveness at all. The more we know God and his kingdom, his king of unbridled forgiveness, the less, by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit, we'll look like Lamech, wanting unbridled vengeance. More we will lean towards unbridled grace and mercy. So that's how much to forgive. That's our first point. And Jesus explains this profound truth with a story. And in the story, we'll see our second point, how to forgive. And then our third and final point, how God forgives. So secondly, how to forgive. And we see this very clearly in our text. There's one servant who's called before the king, and he owes the king 10,000 talents. And it's extremely difficult to translate numbers like this into modern-day currency. Uh, But we just need to understand one thing primarily. This is a ridiculously, hugely enormous debt. If you go online... You can find all kinds of stories. Maybe you've done this before. You can find heartbreaking stories of people who have made financial mistakes or had accidents happen. And they found themselves tens or even hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And if you read those stories, your heart can't help but go out to those people. They feel like their life is over before it even began. They don't know how they can live with such a crushing amount of debt. That's over tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Well, some argue that this debt Uh, of 10,000 talents, translates to roughly $400 billion. Not $400 million, $400 billion. That would be enough to bankrupt entire kingdoms at the time. That's what this individual somehow owes. And the king, the king who called him in, in the most amazing act of pity the world has ever known, We read his heart goes out to the man who's in crushing debt and he wipes the slate completely clean. And we'll get to that more in our third point. But what we need to know now is that this same servant goes out having this crippling, unimaginable debt wiped clean. And what this servant does is find someone who owes him 100 denarii. And now we need to pay really careful attention here. This is really important. Because this is something a lot of people misunderstand, and I used to misunderstand, and it radically changes uh, how we understand the parable. It completely changes the story. If you look in certain study Bibles, it will say about the hundred denarii that, uh, well, first it will say the first servant owed billions of dollars, which is correct. But then they'll say the second servant owed a hundred denarii. That is a few dollars. Maybe you've heard that before. I actually once heard a sermon Uh, And someone suggests that the second servant owed the first one, relatively speaking, about 25 cents. That, we need to know, is not what Jesus is saying at all. He says the second servant owed the first one 100 denarii. One denarii, we know very well, was one day's wage for a regular laborer. And so 100 denarii would be what? 100 days wage. Uh, About three to four months' salary. Now, for you and for me, is four, a three or four-month salary, is that a lot of money? Yeah. That's like ten or $15,000. That's not a few dollars. That's not 25 cents. This guy that the servant runs into, he owes him a lot of money. And so the first servant is upset. He's probably not a rich man. He's got a family to feed. This was his money. He worked for it. And this other guy, he borrowed it and can't pay it back when his family needs it. And so this first servant, who is forgiven so much, He is deeply upset. It says he begins to choke him. He has him thrown in prison. And clearly, the shocking point of this passage is that the first servant should be willing to forgive this debt, not of 25 cents, not of a few dollars. Anyone could forgive a few dollars debt of 10 to 15 thousand dollars. That's remarkable. That is a profound teaching on forgiveness. And it's the answer to the objection that we heard in, or the, in the introduction against forgiveness, about forgiveness being a bad thing, because it lets people off easy, scot-free. Forgiveness is much more profound than that. Just think about it this way, with another financial example. Picture for a second that someone this coming week, they borrow your car. And as they drive it around, they damage it in a way that it's unusable. There are, in a sense, two options. Either you can demand that they pay for the repairs, or you can forgive them, in a sense, and tell them not to worry about it. In that case, though, is it just easy forgiveness? Does the car just go unpaid for? No, if you don't have them pay for it, then you have to pay for it. Either you have to pay for it with your time and inconvenience and money, or else, if you don't get it fixed then you need to pay with the annoyance and frustration and limited freedom of being stuck without a car. Maybe you before, like me, have had an old car at one point that was damaged and you couldn't reliably drive it. It's a frustration. It's a burden. and It limits you. And so if you don't demand the other person pay, well, then you are the one that absorbs the whole cost for their mistake. And this is crucially important because some people, probably some people in this room, have been badly hurt by other people, by other people's mistakes. And it's not helpful for anyone to have that debt compared to 25 cents. Just get over it. No, that debt can hurt. It can be ten or $15,000. It can be a lot of money. You can deal with the consequences every day. But this text doesn't say that forgiveness is easy or that it's not costly. It actually says something more profound. Costly, uh, forgiveness is costly for the person who grants it. That's something we often forget. Our text doesn't say forgiving people who sinned against you is easy. In the context of God forgiving our sin debt, though, we should desire to absorb the sin debt of others, even large sin debts. Now, one more quick note. It's important to realize, again, this is sometimes considered wrongly. Being willing to forgive someone doesn't necessarily mean your relationship goes right back where it was, right back to normal. Sometimes people think that is what forgiveness is. But there can still be consequences. Maybe you heard this last week from Reverend Dong. I wasn't here. God forgave David, didn't he? Were there still consequences for David's sin? Absolutely. You can forgive someone and they can still be held accountable. That's why I mentioned right before this text. If someone is sinning against you and they keep on sinning against you, you're not a doormat. You don't just sit there and easily forgive, forgive, forgive. What does Jesus say? If someone sins against you and keeps on sinning against you, you go and rebuke them, Jesus says. And if they don't listen, they say sorry, and then they keep on doing it and show no true repentance, what do you do? Let it go? No, you get a friend. You go back. Then what do you do? You get another friend. Then what do you do? You go to the church. And then does the church just leave it alone? No, the church, potentially, we read in Matthew 18, has to say, we don't think you're a believer at all. We're in fear of your soul because you keep on asking for forgiveness, but you're showing no true forgiveness. You're not changing. You're not transforming. To use our car analogy from before, forgiving someone doesn't mean you have to let them keep hurting you. So if someone borrows your car and crashes it and you forgive them, you say, I'll take care of it, I'll absorb the cost. That doesn't mean you have to give them your keys again anytime soon, does it? My old minister used to say, and it stuck with me forgiveness is granted, trust is earned. That's crucially important to remember because forgiveness is costly. I think the people who hate forgiveness, who don't respect it, I think they have the wrong idea of forgiveness. They think of forgiveness as something light and easy. You can just hand out time and time again. It's being treated like a doormat. But that's not what the Bible says about forgiveness. Is that how God forgives us? Paul rebukes that very harshly, doesn't he? When Paul explains the gospel, our free forgiveness in Christ... His opponents say, well, then you can just keep on sinning as though nothing happened. And Paul says, no way. People who are truly repentant, who know what Christ paid for our sins, they can't keep on sinning like nothing happened. They can't keep on causing hurt and just saying, oh, just forgive it, just forgive it, just forgive it. Often we ask for forgiveness from other people, and this is my main point here, often we ask for forgiveness from God. Like it's a very cheap thing, don't we? I'm guilty of it, for sure. I imagine some people here are too. How often in our prayers to God do we quickly throw in, God, forgive us for all of our sins? Do we know what we're asking? Are we really thinking about it? Are we reflecting on what that means? We're asking for God to absorb the price of our offenses, that He pay for it, not us. Don't ask that lightly. Ask that with humility. Ask that with sincere repentance for the sin that we've done, the harm that we've done, and likewise when we ask others to forgive us. Sometimes we just force our kids to ask for forgiveness. I think that's okay. They're kids, they don't understand. But as adults, certainly, we shouldn't easily ask for forgiveness. We messed up, we made the mistake. We're asking them not to hold us to account. That's a big thing in Scripture. It should be a big thing for us. This is what we have to do when faced not just with how to forgive, but with how God forgives. That's our third and final point. And here we see the undeniable organic link between us learning to forgive others and us having been forgiven that this parable and the Lord's Prayer make so clear. Because think about it. Why in the world should this first servant, probably a poor man himself with a family like we said, why should he ever forgive this other man's $15,000 debt? It seems crazy and illogical and no one would ever ask him to do that. It seems like too much to ask if he needs that money. And for any of us, not speaking about financial debt, but what it points to, why should we forgive the same person's sin debt over and over again? Why should we forgive it three times or seven times or 77 times? Why should we strive, like the Catechism says, to be fully determined wholeheartedly to absorb the debt ourselves in order to freely forgive the one who has wronged us. The only reason we would ever do this radical thing is because of what the king has already done for us. As mentioned before, the debt others have towards us in the parable, 100 denarii, that's big, 10 to $15,000. But the debt that we owe to the king in the parable, Jesus sets the price at $400 billion dollars some people some commentators on this text they say that this number is sarcasm or hyperbole that when we read that number 400 billion we're supposed to laugh i just want to ask you what do you think do we dare laugh at that number 400 billion what is our debt towards god as humans Every one of those 10,000 talents, or as the NIV translates it, 10,000 bags of gold. Every one of those bags is filled to the brim with our sins. Every way we ever have or ever will fall short of the perfect image of God that we were created to be. Every way we've fallen short of that, that's a sin. Every shortcoming... Every failure, every intentional sin is stacked up before the king's presence in those bags. And every day, as we heard earlier from Paul, our bad works, but also our good works, add to that stack. We simply add to the pile of our offenses. And, brothers and sisters, what does our king do? We read in the text he looks upon us, miserable sinners hugely in debt to him, and he has pity on us. I've mentioned this word before. Uh, This is the same word used in Mark in cleansing of the leper, what Jesus felt towards the leper. It's the same word in the parable of the prodigal son, what the father felt towards his son. God, this great king, he looks upon us in our predicament, and his heart is moved with compassion towards us. His heart goes out to us, lowly, filthy, indebted servants like you and me. And he says, all is forgiven. All is washed clean. It's cleared from your account. And we've learned what forgiveness really is. Is that an easy thing? Is that a light thing? No, we learned forgiveness is a costly thing. What does it mean for the king to look at that pile of your debts and mine and say, forget about it? It means he's going to pay the price himself. How did the king pay the price himself? Do you still think the debt of $400 billion is too much? That it's a bit of an exaggeration? Then just look at how the king paid the price. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity came down. He humbled himself as a servant. He suffered hellish agony all his life, and especially at the end. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, was rejected. He was mocked. He was beaten and spat upon. He was nailed to a cross in his hands and his feet. He was cursed by man. He was cursed by God, his Father. As he breathed his last, he said, It is finished. I imagine you've heard before what that means. Paid in full. It's done. We saw this signified and sealed in baptism as we prayed together earlier. He has forgiven us and our children all our sins. He sprinkled us clean with his precious blood. The debt is gone. We've been set free. And when you realize that $400 billion doesn't sound too high anymore. When you realize the cost setting people like you and me free. The death of the perfect Son of God on the cross. One commentary I read this past week asked how it could possibly be that Christians could not only not be good at forgiving, but that some Christians could not even want to forgive. And more than that, that Christians like us can ask for forgiveness from others and even ask for forgiveness from God so flippantly in our prayers. And his answer was a very harsh one. But a very insightful one. He says the only possible answer what can be given is that such a soul has never really yet had a personal encounter with the living Christ. That one has never yet really sensed the overwhelming love and concern of God for them, as a father for his dear child. It is when we stand alone, quietly, earnestly contemplating the cost of God for our forgiveness made possible by the cross, that there floods over us a sense of our deep debt towards God. Our biggest problem with being forgiving people is not is just not really knowing, not sensing, not feeling how much it costs for God to forgive us, how much we have been forgiven. And you can see that again in the parable. If you look at verse 26, there the first servant, when confronted with his crushing debt, like us, $400 billion. What does he say? The guy who ends up being ungrateful after all in the end. He says, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He thinks he can pay it on his own. He doesn't understand the debt. He knew, he understood how much he would have to suffer to forgive $15,000 to someone else to absorb that cost. He had no idea how much the king had to suffer to forgive him. The more we come to know that, the more we'll heartfeltly pray, as we read in the Catechism, Father, forgive us. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. That is for the sake of Christ's blood. Do not impute to us, wretched sinners, if it's not imputed to us, who's it imputed to? Any of our transgressions, nor the evil which still clings to us. We're asking that that would be imputed to Christ instead. As we also find this evidence of your grace in us, we pray, that we are fully determined, wholeheartedly, to forgive our neighbor. He started this sermon with just a beautiful example of wholehearted determination to forgive, as Christ forgave us, with a family of victims of a church shooting, I want to end with just another profound example. Perhaps you've heard of it before. Perhaps you've heard of Corey Tenboom. She was a Dutch Christian whose family hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. Her and her sister Betsy were caught. They were sent to a concentration camp. Eventually, Betsy died there. Corey survived. After the war, Cory became a Christian speaker, going around powerfully sharing the gospel and her testimony of her faith. A couple years after the war, she went and spoke in Munich, Germany, and she shares her story of what happened there. It was there that I saw him, a man who had stood guard at the shower room in the concentration camp. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly, it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming, and saying, how grateful I am for your message, to think that, as you say, He has washed my sins away. He thrust out his hand to shake mine. My hand stayed at my side. Angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I couldn't. I silently prayed, Jesus, I can't forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. I took his hand. As I did, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. Into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And she found that when God tells us to love and forgive our enemies even as he did, he gives, along with the command, the love and the forgiveness itself. Amen. Let's sing together in response. Hymn 63, stanzas one and six. Thank you. profess together our Catholic undoubted Christian faith as we have it summarized in the Apostles Creed and put to music in hymn one. come before our Lord in prayer together and in our prayer uh, we'll ask for a blessing on uh, the communal meal that Andrew and Cheryl have invited us all uh, to join them in after the service let's pray awesome God and great king thank you that we have a king like you a king over the whole universe a king that would look down on people like us great debtors and have his heart be moved with pity and compassion. Lord, thank you for the immense price that you paid to clear our enormous debt from our shoulders. As we look at our forgiveness, the price of our forgiveness in Jesus Christ, we ask that more and more you'll teach us about your love and grace and kindness towards us, and that more and more you'll equip us and transform us so we can be gracious people too. We can be forgiving people too. Lord, we ask that you'll ask us to forgive even big sin debts against us. When people have really, truly hurt us, it can be hard and painful and costly to forgive, and you know that. We're so thankful that you paid the painful, costly price to forgive us. Thank you that you care for us in spite of our sin. Thank you that you care for this world that we live in as well. Thank you for the promise that we heard earlier in the baptism, that you promise all of your people to avert all evil or turn it to our benefit. We ask that you'll continue to work over or work in this world and guide it. Lord, we ask that you'll guide our nation. Lord, we're thankful for Canada. We're thankful that we can worship in freedom. We ask that you'll continue to work powerfully in Canada, uh, in and through the government of our nation. Lord, we know that they were put in power by you, and that gives us a great confidence, knowing that you are the one who's really in charge, and you will hold all people to account. We ask that the, those who rule the nation might govern in such a way that your gospel will go out and your church will be enhanced, that we, your people, may be, live quiet and peaceable lives, godly in every way. We pray for those in Canada and around this world who are suffering, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our Lord, so often on the news, especially this past week, we hear so much about disasters and disease and wars and rumors of wars and we hear that the world is groaning under the effects of our human sin, we ask that you might keep your promise, avert all evil, or turn it to the benefit of your people. We ask that more and more people might be brought to faith in Jesus Christ. We know that he's made us a new creation through faith in him. We know that he's making all things new. Lord, we ask that he may return soon. We ask that for now, as we live in this uh, world full of sin, in these bodies still full of sin, that we might be able to sleep soundly knowing that you are in control. As that you'll bless this to us and to our church family. We ask that you'll bless our time that we have together as a church family uh, during this worship service, but also right after it. We're so thankful for the baptism we could wish, witness the sign and seal of your gospel message. We're thankful also for a chance to celebrate and eat a meal together on this happy occasion for the Loughton family. We pray that you will bless the food, fill our bodies with energy, and help us use all that energy to your glory, and to the praise of your great name. We pray these things in Jesus' name alone. Amen. So once again, in our worship services, we have the opportunity uh, to give our gifts to to the Lord. It doesn't go to the operating budget of the church at all. Uh, It's always for uh, good organizations or those who are in need. The collection, once again, this service is for the Asia Mission Board, uh, which supports mission work and helps equip Christians uh, in Asia. Now after the offering, please stand with me if you're able to, and we'll sing together in closing, uh, Hymn 82, stanzas 1, 3, and 4. Amen. Before the final blessing, one more quick reminder uh, that you're all invited to stay uh, afterwards to celebrate with Andrew and Cheryl uh, for a dinner that will be set up in just a, a few moments. Brothers and sisters, lift up your hearts to the Lord and go home in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now also, stay in your seats for a moment. I forgot to mention Uh, But uh, John, uh, one of the elders, will come up and present uh, Andrew and Cheryl with uh, a book on behalf of the consistory.
0: Well, congratulations, Andrew and Cheryl. Uh, I know many prayers have been ask to the Lord for these blessings that you have been able to have, and we thank you for that, and it wasn't too long ago that as a congregation, we had Alan and Tiffany with their baby son, and now the newest member is now a Luton, and so we pray that uh, as congregation and as family that we all support Andrew and Cheryl in raising Maddie, Christine, a wonderful name for this child, and we thank you for that as well, and we know that as a congregation, it it almost takes a village to raise a child, while here it takes a congregation to raise a child, and so we hope to be able to support you in any way that you need, we know you have Herman and Jane and the rest of the family to support you, but as a covenant congregation, God's people, we're here all for you as well and we congratulate you again.